DollarShaveClub.com is a no-brainer for an incredible shave delivered right to your door. DollarShaveClub.com delivers high-quality razors right to your home for less than what you'd normally pay. There's no reason to deal with the hassle of going to the store to buy expensive razors when you can just join the club. Just go to DollarShaveClub.com and pick a razor that works for you from their lineup of amazing blades. That's all there is to it. Get a first-class shave with the executive razor... And with their Dr. Carver's shave butter, the blade gently glides through for the smoothest shave imaginable. Here's your chance to see why over 3 million members love Dollar Shave Club. Right now, you can get your first month of the club for as little as $5. After that, it's a few bucks a month. Dollar Shave Club is so confident in the quality and value of all their products, there's no long-term commitments or any hidden fees. There's no reason not to join. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash 10 questions. That's one. One, zero, questions, 10 questions. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash 10 questions. Let's get on with the show. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. 10 questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff, we have liftoff. Welcome back to 10 Questions. Today's interview with former advertising copywriter turned social commentator turned novelist Jane Caro is chock-a-block with wisdom. If you suffer anxiety or insecurity or want to turn your life around in some way, then please listen in. I first came across Jane on what used to be called the Gruen Transfer, then invited her to be on Agony and was immediately bowled over by her clear thinking and the effortless way she gets her point across. For those wanting to hear Jane speak beyond this interview and her regular spot on Sunrise, can check her out when she emcees the Global Atheist Convention in February next year, where she'll be speaking alongside Salman Rushdie and Richard Dawkins. We didn't really get onto God in this interview, but we managed to cover multiple topics in a short space of time, and as usual, I started by asking Jane... When she was most happy? I was probably most happy at the birth of both my daughters. Yeah, I would say that is when I was most happy. Um, Particularly because we didn't know the gender beforehand in those days. I mean, you could find out, but it wasn't as definite as it is now. And particularly the first time, even though I didn't let myself really think about it too much, I did secretly really want a girl. And so, of course, when... My first daughter was born and I said, what is it? What is it? And they, I remember they held the baby up, but the umbilical cord hung down between her legs so I couldn't see. And I said, I can't see something. And they said, it's a girl. And I was really happy because I did secretly want a girl. And, of course, I would have been really happy if it had been a boy too. But um, And then the second time around, I remember my eldest daughter was, I suppose, close to three when my um second daughter was born so I was pregnant you know all the way through that kind of third year of Polly's life and she would just very decidedly say constantly because I'd say you know you're gonna have a little brother or sister and she'd go no no it's a girl and her name is Charlotte and it was a girl and we called her Charlotte so (laughs) that's great Um, yeah so I think and I was lucky I had um even though both the girls were born uh, a few weeks preemie um I had two really fantastic births. I recommend epidurals to everybody. Um, and so I thought I actually thoroughly enjoyed giving birth. I know you're not supposed to, but when there's 
not a lot of pain or the pain is sort of at the end of a long corridor and you can kind of manage it. Um, it's a really extraordinary experience. And, and what are they doing now? What are your daughters doing now? Uh, well, one is actually um, uh, she's a teacher, but an English teacher, but she's on um, parental leave at the moment. She's got a little boy who's um, 18 months old and she's having another baby and she's just found out because now everybody finds the gender out um, <laughs> early that she's having a little girl. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah. And my younger daughter is um, a marketing manager of a wine company. Incidentally, Jane's daughter, Polly Dunning, wrote an excellent article in the SMH last year about having a boy when, like Jane, she'd always hoped of having a girl. But once her son arrived, she said she wouldn't swap him for all the daughters in the world. Nevertheless, she swore to raise him as a feminist, just like his father and grandfather, and point out sexism to him at every turn but back to the birth itself i think she also really enjoyed giving birth again because you know she had me as a mother and i just said to her be sensible go to a labor ward you don't want to go to some you know hippy dippy um birthing unit or anything like that because really it doesn't matter what your surroundings look like um go to go to a labor ward so all the options are open to you and frankly when they tell you that you may experience some discomfort they're lying through their teeth it hurts like hell Mm. And, uh, frankly, I thought an epidural was absolutely wonderful, so she was very happy to have an epidural as well. I was a support person at my grandson's birth, and uh, she also had a really fantastic, you know, and I think, yes, she enjoyed giving birth. Um, well, that, that's good. I, I'm, I'm glad, and it's good, good recommendations from you. Um, <laughs> question two is who would you like to apologise to and why? Oh, there's a lot of people I'd probably like to apologise to over the years, but... Probably the people, you know, the people I'd most like to apologise to are my parents and not not for how I was as a kid at all but really how I am with them now because I, I find myself quite impatient with them. They're 85 and 86 now. They're amazing, you know, they've got their marbles and they're really energetic and they're, you know, they've seen every play and been to every film and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But... You know, they're not, they're not quite the people they were when they were younger and I get impatient sometimes with that and that's, that's not fair and it's not reasonable and sometimes I feel I can sort of see myself being a bit snappy and lacking in kind of patience and um, I often feel that I often feel after I've left their company that, you know, I should have been kinder. But Jane said she didn't want her parents to see that she was treating them differently just because they're ageing. I don't want to patronise them. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to – because you see that thing where people get really kind to old people and it's horrible because Mm. it's kind of like you've given up expecting them. So in a way my impatience is is respectful uh, as well as not being very kind. It's respectful. (laughs) I'm still expecting a lot of them. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, exactly. Um. Question three is, what is your greatest regret? I don't have a lot of regrets. Um, maybe maybe that I didn't, that I was too easily discouraged when I was young uh, and I didn't, have, <clears throat> I didn't have a lot of confidence in my own ability. So I would often take no for an answer. I would often not push something because... I'd think I'd get these, you know, things in my head like, 
who are you, what would you know, it's probably not good enough, you know, that kind of talk. Mm. And that stopped me trying to do a lot of things. And I think, um, you know, if I hadn't had that undermining voice, um, I might have... I might have made a run into the kind of career I've got now a bit earlier. Um, I, mm. I, it was the sort of thing I always wanted to do, but I'd watch other people and I'd think, oh, I'm not clever enough, I'm not witty enough. And, and of course, now that I'm doing that stuff, I realise you don't have to be very clever or very witty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I was completely delusional about the kind of skills you had to have and that, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I could have given it a go. When did you become confident? When did, when did the... Um I, I don't know, when did you slowly kind of leave that behind and go, you know, actually, I can do this? Yeah, I think it was, um, it's interesting, it's it's back to the giving birth time because what happened was, although I really enjoyed giving birth and I, they were my two happiest moments, um, I, I had my most unhappy moment uh, within a, like a couple of weeks giving birth to my eldest daughter because she, because she was preemie, she was in a special nursery and she picked up a... a an infection, uh, which is, you know, a common cold in most older kids, but it can be fatal to um, premature babies. Mm. It's called RSV, positive bronchiolitis, and we ended up in Camperdown Children's Hospital and she ended up stopping breathing three times and having to be resuscitated and rushed into intensive care. And, you know, it was a very dramatic experience. Oh, and, my God. Um, yeah, um, uh, you know, I really thought she was going to die. And um, it, it, the interesting thing is that, I had learnt, I mean, I suffered, I've written about this in my um, memoir, Plants Begging Jane, I suffered from an anxiety neurosis for a very long time, probably part of that undermining thing I was talking about before. And um, I had one of the gifts of that neurosis, and there were many gifts as it turns out, um, was that it made me seek help. And so I'd learnt how to ask for help when I needed it. And uh, I needed help the day after she'd been rushed to intensive care. And I reached out and I found a, um, through a friend, I found a, a neonatologist called Peter Barr at the Children's Hospital, which is where we were, and he came down and had a coffee with me, and he was a grief counsellor as well, and he said to me, he walked up to me and he said, terrible things can happen, they can happen to anyone, there's nothing special about you, and there's nothing special about Polly, my daughter, um, safety is an illusion, danger is reality. And now that sounds really brutal, but actually it was really powerful because what it said to me was it's not my fault what's happened to my daughter and I'd been doing all that magical thinking about, you know, was it because I was in room 13, was it, you know, all that mm. nonsense. And then I realised that had nothing to do with it. It's just one of those things that happens to people sometimes. And what that started to get me to realise was that I couldn't cast spells and keep myself and those people I loved safe, which I think is part of what I was trying to do with my anxiety and neurosis. I couldn't mm. pre uh, I couldn't pre imagine what was going to happen and therefore somehow magically stop it stop it happening, yeah. or possibly by imagining it make it happen. So I was putting that cleft stick. That actually I didn't have any I didn't have that kind of power and or control, and that maybe I should just let go of all that idea that I could control what happens. And what I would do instead was simply deal with things as they came up in front of me. And if they were good, great. If they were bad, well, I'd deal with it at the time. And funnily enough, as I did that, as I sort of got changed from a trying to control everything mindset to a, well, I can't control what 
you know, what's going to happen next, so I'll just do what's in front of me, mindset, I did become more confident. I um, became, and it's a funny kind of confidence. It's not that feeling of I can do it and I'm awesome and I can do it brilliantly. It's a feeling of, well, I'll give it a go. And it doesn't matter if I'm not that great. And it doesn't matter if I fail. You know what I mean? It, mm. It's 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 the confidence that comes with I don't have to be the best person in the room. I don't have to say the smartest thing. Um, you know, I can just be in there participating and enjoying it and saying what comes into my head and that that's perfectly okay because I can't even keep myself safe from um, being looking like an idiot or, you know, all those other things we worry about. So I just mm. – it, what it does, what what that those simple sentences, and I guess surviving, and my daughter, thank God, surviving that really um, terrible time, and me not going bad, mad or falling apart or any of the things I feared might happen, you know, it just made me realise the best thing to do is not anticipate anything. Just literally do the thing that's in front of you, finish that, then do the next thing that's in front of you and finish that. And obviously you do it as well as you can, but I don't try to be brilliant because the problem with that is you really, other people will decide whether you're brilliant or not. You can't decide that. And if you if you if you try to be brilliant, what you're trying to do all the time is you second guess what other people are going to think about what you're about to do or doing. And that drives you crazy because you don't know what they're going to think. <laughs> so what you can do is just do it till you think, well, that's okay. I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> Let it go out there and see how the rest of the world judges yeah. it. You know? and, and that's basically how I approach everything. And from that has come this sense of not I think what most people think confidence is before they get it, but a sense of really, oh, well, we'll give it a, we'll give it a burl, yeah. you know, and let the consequences fall where they may. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really good. It's really good advice. You know, you know, particularly for for me, the pre-imagining of uh, the worst case scenario. My God, drives us all insane and uses so much energy. My eldest daughter is a real victim to it at the moment. She's always, you know, thinking about it, all the things that possibly go wrong and why. Therefore, she shouldn't do this. And what if she does that? And then that happens. And I'm just constantly saying the same thing to her: Stop anticipating. Yeah. Stop anticipating. Yeah, I, it's true. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my dad used to always. I, th- I thought it was genetic because my dad used to always um, talk about his mother, my grandmother, um, starting every sentence with "Wouldn't it be awful if?" Yes, I'm Jane's worst nightmare. I'm a catastrophizing, superstitious worry ward who also reads his stars. It's genetic. Question four is: What will you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? Oh well, I'd I'd, I'd still like to do a lot more work. Uh, I'd really like to, I'd I'd like to write a a good adult novel. I've written, you know, three fairly good young adult novels, but I'd like to write a good adult novel. I'd like to do something, maybe it's not, it doesn't have to be a good adult novel. Maybe it could be a play or, or a drama. I'd like to do something, um, in that area rather than constantly nonfiction and polemic and, um, all of that, that I would really like to get my teeth into. Um, and I would like, I would like to feel that I have made a contribution, small perhaps, in, um, women and how they perceive themselves and how they are perceived and how they can throw off 
um, the undermining voice, the need to anticipate the seeking of approval, all those things that mm. in my life I have had to strip off myself as well. I'd like, I'd like to feel that, you know, I can continue to c- communicate my story and that to some extent that can help other women um, yeah. themselves of that stuff and men too. Um, and also I would like, I would like very much to have some effect on the way Australians view public education mm. um, because I think it's one of our blind spots. All countries have cultural blind spots and we're as um, blind to the long-term consequences of our very class stratified education system and the way we starve the kids who need the most and overindulge the kids who need the least. Mm. Um we're as blind to that as the Americans are about gun control. We, yeah. and, and so if I could contribute in some way to, um, you know, um, I don't know, removing some of the cataracts that cloud Australians' vision about that, I would, I would feel that I had done something of value. What's the deal with Australians? I mean, we apparently live in this classless society, but that's just a, a smoke screen or just a kind yeah. of... Um, yeah, bullshit. Yeah, well, I mean, so we're, we'll call each other mate and we'll pretend that we're egalitarian, yet we're such a stratified society. And we're building a class system as fast as we can and we're using the very thing that other countries use to de construct class system to do it we're using our education system you'll find so many otherwise progressive um people who will you know wax lyrical about the importance of equality and equity and closing the gaps and all those things then blithely turn around and send their kids to a fee charging school Mm. and i just look at them and think how how do you put those two things together yeah and, it, and they're frightened, um, they're frightened that their children won't get a good enough education, which is rubbish, um, and they feel very vulnerable somehow in their confidence about their parenting. So I don't know what that's about. Or maybe they feel very frightened about, they talk about letting their children out, it's somehow that they won't be in the class they need to be. And we're sort of secret snobs about you know, not living in the western suburbs and not being a tradie and not, you know, mm. I think those people are marvellous but mm. not my child. I want them to be a lawyer or a doctor, <laughs> and live, you know, uh, and in a city suburb. Um, and, yeah, I just, I think we, I, look, class is something that exists in all human societies. I accept that. But I think we should be more honest about it in Australia. And I think it may be my, I mean, all my family come from Manchester originally and, um, you know, we came here when I was five or six, so that's still very much part of my cultural background. And Manchester, of course, is like the bolshiest city in England and um, it's very aware of class. And so I look at it with my North Country eyes on and I just go Northern English eyes on I just go, this, you know, Australians are so full of fucking bullshit about being a classless society and it does make me, you know, it makes my bullshit meter ring really loudly and me feel, I feel disgusted by it, to be honest with you. I think it's important that Jane exposes the lie of Australia being a classless society. We have a very rigid class system in Australia that few of us admit to and hardly anyone wants to talk about. Tim Winton recently recounted how he mentioned class and polite company and felt for a moment as if he'd shat in the pool. It's definitely one of our big no-go areas. 
Maybe it's because in modern Australia, we're not as good a mates as we all pretend to be. We're the opposite of mates. We're, um, we're, we're, we're um, smiling with one side of our face and uh, trying to keep our distance and our children distant from those people as much as we can with the other. Mm, yeah. And that whole thing about going off, sending the kids who've gone to the elite school when they finish, they've got to go off and build an orphanage in Cambodia or something like that. <laughs> the, the social tourism, the using of poor people to broaden the life experience of the gorgeous little middle-class kitty absolutely makes me want to vomit. <laughs> um, question five. Who is the person who most influenced you and how? Well, there's a few, I suppose, but I, I would say that my parents have been a huge influence on my life. They're both very um, strong-minded, articulate, creative people with a lot of um, energy and vigour who encouraged us very much to think for ourselves, to debate, to argue, and also at all costs. So this was the kind of central moral value of my family because we're atheists, you know, I think we're third generation atheists at a minimum, so there was no religious um, background, but the but the core moral value was honesty. You had to tell the truth. Forgiven mm. for just about – that didn't just mean tell the truth in terms of don't lie to your parents. It also meant don't lie to yourself, you know, stare yourself in the face, um, be aware of your own hypocrisies and your own um, failings and acknowledge them. Um, and and own them. Um, hypocrisy was really something that you know was not tolerated, and that kind of thing. And so that that's had a huge influence on me, I think. Mm. Um, and oddly enough, I think, and this is the person that I write my young adult novels about, and you know, um, incredibly um, arrogantly in her voice, Elizabeth the First has always been a huge. Um, hero in my life and someone I'm really obsessed with and really interested in reading about. And I think it's because, it, you know, when you're a girl, um, particularly I was a, you know, child and a young woman in the 60s and early 70s, there were so few female heroes. Mm. They're just, you know, God, boys, they have heroes wherever they turn. You know, there's someone that you can admire and you can emulate. But for girls, there's just none, you know. It's mm. just two of them. And any there are, you know, like Joan of Arc or Grace Darling or any, they all died horribly. You know, it's really yeah. dumb. You know, there's no there's no way of looking and going, well, how do I live a, how do I live a big life and be female, you know? Yeah, yeah. Elizabeth I was one, you know, who did. And what's so wonderful about her is that she did it on her own. She refused to ever marry. Um, she, uh, you know, she she ran a kingdom. Now, she wasn't perfect. She made lots of mistakes. She was a creature of her time and, you know, her views of the world. But she wasn't a quintessentially modern person too. I mean, she made incredible statements like, I, I don't want to make a window into men's souls. Like, I don't really care what you believe. Just do the law, you know, follow mm. the law and believe whatever you like. Well, that's, that's a very modern attitude. Um, she also said things like um, there is but one Lord Jesus, the rest is a dispute over trifles. 
this is this is a big thinker. This is somebody who, and who had a tolerant, particularly for her period of time, you know, mm-hmm. view of the world. And she was a woman who wielded power. Well, they're rare. She wielded on on her own. That's almost unheard of, and was pretty well regarded to have wielded it well. Well, that's just about. She's almost the only one. Mm-hmm. So she she was important. She was important in that it made me think. You know, women are not lesser. They may have lesser opportunities, but they are not intrinsically lesser. Look at her. She was not lesser. When did you, um, when she first become prominent to you? I, I don't actually know for sure, but I suspect, I remember um, in my bedroom when I was a kid, we had a, a big wardrobe, and in there, I think they were just shoved in there because my mother didn't know what to do with them, were these old... Um, Encyclopedia Britannicas. They were very quite old. I think they must have belonged to her father. They were like from the 1910s, you know. Oh, wow. And at night, because uh, I was this mad reader, I would um, drag these big books out of this wardrobe and I would go through the encyclopedia. And I didn't read any of the um, science stuff. I wasn't interested in that or any of that. But what I was interested in was things like, stories about people so the greek myths and legends i read all of those the roman myths and legends but also the monarchs and of course elizabeth the first was in there and i think that is when i must have first discovered her and i think i just thought oh a woman you know who did it for herself it's interesting a a young girl i don't know how old she was but let's say she was on 10 or 11 or something at a writers festival when i was um talking about the book asked a question that really um you know, um, revealed to me why she had so attracted me as a child. I mean, I understand why I'm so interested in her now as an adult, but she revealed to me why I was so attracted to her as a child because she said to me, particularly about the first book, Just a Girl, which is about the young Elizabeth before she came, became queen, she said, did you realise you were rewriting the Cinderella myth? And I looked at her and I said, no, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> wow. Except the difference is with Elizabeth I that she didn't have to find a prince to rescue her. She became her own prince and she rescued herself. And that's when it came completely clear to me why she has been such a hero of mine. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, Question six, Jane. When was the last time you cried and why? Yeah. I I read this in your list of questions. I haven't got an answer for. Um, (laughs) I... I haven't cried for such a long time. Um, because I, I, I think it's a, a, I think it is something that happens to you as you get older. You don't cry so easily. I mean, I think probably the last time I cried, and this is shameful to admit it, was probably over some stupid film, you know, yeah, where yeah. I found myself <laughs> sobbing like a baby over. And usually I find myself sobbing over the baby in the bittersweet, you know, where where somebody does something really generous or really self-sacrificial and that's what makes me cry or there's, the, you know, there's the goodness of people is shown and that's what tends to make me cry now. I mean, I'm living a lucky life at the moment and, and not much has happened that would make, you know, that I've grieved over for a long time. Um, well, that's good. Yeah, but, yeah, so I don't, you know, I, I was really kind of, thinking to myself, I haven't really, you know, howled about anything for a very long time. <laughs> uh, doesn't mean I won't again, but I just haven't for a while. Well, can I just ask, backtracking, what did your parents do? What, um, they're from Manchester. 
Oh, yeah. I, I well, my son was a bit posh. You know, he went to um, Manchester Grammar School and Cambridge University. So, ah. you know, for this him, you wouldn't think that he was from Manchester, but he is, but he's a bit, you know, a bit posh. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, he came from Stockport, which is kind of fancy. And my mother is much more, um, you know, common is the word that she always makes her bristle. Um, <laughs> probably where I get my class consciousness from. And she's definitely got a Lancashire accent. And she grew up in Gatley and Cheadle Hume in Manchester. And, I mean, she still went to Altrincham Girls Grammar School, which is quite a famous school. But she never got the opportunity to go to university and that kind of thing. Um, right. She did eventually go to university here um, after Gough Whitlam's um, made the university free. A lot of middle-aged women went to university then. Mm. Um, really, I think it changed Australia profoundly, the ability yeah. of to get an education they'd been denied. Um, but my father was in business. He was in uh, marketing uh, in the Mad Men era and uh, he was a very successful businessman. He he rose to be uh, the managing director of Brickett and Coleman in Australia and also ah. um, World Series Cricket. He was the managing director of World Series Cricket. For oh, my years. God. Oh, oh. Wow. My mother eventually became a relationships counsellor. And even though Jane's parents were strict when it came to hypocrisy, they still allowed her the freedom to make mistakes. You didn't have to be perfect or live up to some kind of um, outward appearance thing. Um, my father had a lot of scorn for that kind of stuff. You know, mm. he, he was suspicious of those who were smoothly polite or very beautiful. He was okay. suspicious. He, 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 and I think that's the Mancunian coming out. Yeah. That, you know, the, the, the preference for the, for the phlegmatic straight talking, no bullshit, rather than the um, Southern English, smooth, hypocritical, um, cultured, but a slippery um, way of behaving. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's, a, there's a theme of honesty all the way through your, your upbringing, yeah. I think. Question seven is, what is your current state of mind? Oh, well, it's Saturday afternoon, so it's fairly relaxed. Um, yes, it's funny. Since I've begun, you know, and it was a long process of getting rid of anxiety and becoming very much someone who doesn't anticipate and just does the next thing, one of the things about living in the present is um, it, there, there are, is a downside to that. I mean, it, most of it's great, but there is a downside. There's always a downside. The downside is that you often – you don't remember heaps because you don't put a whole lot of angst and energy and, you know, worrying about what you do. So you just do it and move on to the next thing. So, you know what I mean? It kind of right. slips away from you. Um, it's only the big things that you remember. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but I just do notice that. And you don't do a lot anymore. I used to do it all the time, but you don't do a lot anymore of that sort of uh, soul-searching. Mm. Um, how am I feeling? You know, mm. where am I at? And I think because when you do give up on anxiety and you let go of that need to control things you can't control, you you are in a state of more or less equilibrium most of the time. Now, I did have a bit of a uh, Twitter um, uh, squabble yesterday with someone who was being particularly personal and abusive, and I was trying very hard to be rational, calm, and not to descend to the levels of abuse. And that, you know, that got up my nose. Mm. That, that, 
you know, and having to sort of, you know, you type a furious tweet in response to this person who is, A, being incredibly arrogant, pompous and unreasonable, and then you delete that and, you know, yeah. comes down and write a much more kind of mature and calm and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So oh. that was... That, that that was, you know, uh, my husband said to me, I haven't seen you rattle like this for a while. And I said, I know, she's, <laughs> this woman's really getting up my nose, but I'm, I can't show it. And that makes it even harder. Mm, I know. So, <laughs> you know, I'm still, I can still be rattled and I can still, you know, get caught up in shit that I should probably just let go. But, but um, this afternoon I've been catching up on, an, on the episode of Victoria that I missed during the week and I'm enjoying that show. So I'm feeling fairly, been for a long walk. You know, I'm feeling very chilled. That's good. That's good. Yeah, it's it's, it's a funny thing with, with Twitter, how you can be so calm and easygoing and let a whole lot of shit go through to the keeper and then someone oh, sneaks just, a tweet through. And you go, ah! That's yeah, right. exactly. One yeah. gets through the defences. Um, mm-hmm. Question eight is, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Probably my marriage. 43 years. Ah, not bad. Yeah. And the <laughs> fact that we still get on really well and we spend a lot of time together, like we went for a long walk this morning, you know. Um, we have a farm that we go to a lot. We often go with our kids and now our grandchildren, but sometimes it's just the two of us and, you know, um, and we just enjoy each other's company and we can still talk for hours and, so yeah, I think I think that that ability to have kept that relationship, well, you know, it's had its good times and its bad times, like everybody else's. Mm. But basically, to have kept that, um, yeah, with with still a lot of fun in it. That's great. Mm. Um, the second last question, probably my favourite question: Who would you want on your side in a battle, and why? My, my husband. Your husband? Absolutely, my husband. Oh, yes. My husband is the most fucking resourceful person and he, <laughs> he uh, I always knew that if I was on a desert island, he's the one I'd want because he's very practical, he thinks things through, he's very strategic um, and he he's a survivor. He um, had a very uh, a horrible upbringing. He was sent off to boarding school from Jamaica at the age of six on a plane on his own uh. to and, you know, all this sort of stuff and he went to all sorts of boarding schools and, you know, boarding schools are horrible places and particularly in the 60s they were predicting and they were horrible, horrible places. Oh, yeah. And the thing he learned there, the thing that he got out of it that was really positive was how to survive, how to look at a terrible situation and find a way through it and stay alive and keep the people you care about alive and functioning. And he has this enormous, um, I would just rely on him in a crisis. I do now. And he, one of the things he's always given me and perhaps why I'm able to be, you know, outspoken and things is he is always in my corner, always on my side. Um, I just have this sense of this kind of, you know, bedrock behind me. Um, who is full, always encouraging, reframes everything so that it's a positive thing for me and who I know would, you know, um, go into battle for me if it was needed. That's fantastic. And, and when did you – and how did you meet? <laughs> we met through um, old 
some friends. Um, I went to a 17th birthday party of a girlfriend and I'd gone out with her brother. And I'm a state school girl, right? I went to Forest High, but I'd gone out with her brother who'd gone to Barker College and um, she went to Abbotsley and I became quite friendly with her. We were the same age. And so I was the only kind of non-Abbotsley Barker person at this um, 17th birthday party. And um, suddenly this motorbike comes down the driveway and... uh, it was my husband, Ralph, and his then-girlfriend, Nikki, and they were these two incredibly glamorous creatures. Um, <laughs> he, he, he's a very good-looking man now, but when he was, you know, 19, 20, he was uh, gobsmackingly gorgeous. He looked like um, the young Brad Pitt or wow. um, Chris Hemsworth. I mean, he really did. I'm not... I, no, no. Look at my memoir. There's a photo of him. He was just stunning. And um, I didn't... I, I never... I, I didn't think I'd rate, you know, but... We met and his girlfriend was kind of like a young Marilyn Monroe. She was gorgeous as well. And so they were this golden, golden on a big motorbike. You know, it was all very cool. But he had his helmet and he took it off. And on the back of the helmet, this is the 70s, he had a sticker which said, Gear to Dublin, Whitland to Blazers. And that's a right-wing political sticker. And I looked at him and I said, what, you're a right-wing bikey? That's just ridiculous. That's absurd, the honesty coming out. And... Um, Instead of getting all huffy and hating it, and we had this big political argument about the Whitlam government and all this stuff, and instead of him getting all um, huffy, which boys generally did in those days, if you were a girl and you had an opinion, it was kind of like, oh, I'm the man, I'm supposed to tell you what, what, or they just think it was boring and weren't interested or whatever. His eyes lit up. He wasn't offended. He thought this was awesome. And we had this really fantastic, um, light-hearted but quite substantial discussion and then I didn't think any more of it. And then we met again through various mutual friends and he broke up with his girlfriend I broke up with my boyfriend and he was, he'd developed a habit of coming over to see me and, you know, we'd watch telly together and my mother clearly liked him and she said to me one day, she said, don't you think Ralph's interested in you? And I said, oh, no, we're just friends. Because he was so beautiful that I just thought, oh, you know, I was all right. But I wasn't, I wasn't in Nikki's um ballpark you know in terms of gorgeousness and um i said to her, oh no just friends and she said well a boy doesn't come to see a girl every night of the week unless he's interested I thought, <laughs> it's true actually so the next time he came it was his birthday i think it was his 21st birthday and i said to him oh well you can't leave without giving me a birthday kiss and oh. that started so <laughs> i was 18 he was 21 and We've been together ever since. And did you pull him into line politically? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's uh, he's uh, he's an unreconstructed lefty like me these days, and he was he's been in the wine industry most of his life, and they always used to call him the Bollinger Bolshie, the you know, um, <laughs> Clico Commie and that kind of thing. Because yeah, he was always standing up, getting more women in the workplace and workers' rights and all that stuff. Fantastic. The last question, Jane. <laughs> What would you like your last words to be? I, I, I hope it, it would just be, you know, thank you. Um, I'm glad I'm glad I spent the time I had on earth with you, with my family, my friends, parents, sisters, you know, the people that I care about. Um, but probably my last words would be something stupid like, um, oh, shit, I left the iron on or, you know, something <laughs> like that. Um, but my last thoughts I hope would be that I've had an incredibly fortunate life and primarily because of um, the, the great good fortune I had to be born into a, 
a, a, a prosperous and happy um, household, not perfectly happy, but my parents loved each other and that was important. Um, you know, I often think the greatest risk any of us ever take in life is to be born because we have absolutely no idea into the circumstances in which we arrive. Yeah. And I, I was so fortunate in the circumstances that I arrived. And, um, you know, I think that everything I've done and been and said and had and, you know, experienced since then have been building on that, that, that pure piece of good luck. I, I really am not someone who likes the idea of the self-made person or the, you know, I, I built it all myself now. There may be some people that come from, you know, much less fortunate circumstances than mine who have a right to say that. But I, I think to myself, you know, most of my um, achievements and experience have been down to the pure luck of having been born to a pair of smart, interesting, energetic, forthright and honest people who loved me. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. 